0: Welcome to the History Raid Podcast. I'm your host, Kieran Kobach. Today's topic, The Glyndor Rising, Part 2 of 2. In early 1405, the newly crowned Prince of Wales, Owain Glyndwr, demonstrated the kind of foresight often lacking among rebels throughout history. Before 1404, Glyndwr and his English allies were united by a general opposition to the rule of King Henry IV of England. A lack of protest by the Mortimers and Percys to Owain's coronation Suggested that the acceptance of an independent Wales are post Henry IV world on their part, but a broader picture of a post Henry IV England was still lacking. This picture would be drawn up by Owain, Edmund Mortimer, and Henry Percy in February 1405, in an agreement known as the Tripartite Indenture. The agreement saw the Free Allies agree to divide the Kingdom of England between them following the defeat of King Henry IV. Owain would naturally remain the Prince of Wales, and as part of the agreement would not only rule over a unified Wales, but also parts of the current-day English West Midlands, lands considered by many Welsh people to be historically Welsh. Henry Percy, whose family was already one of the most powerful in Northern England, would rule over a new Northern English Kingdom that would have included parts of the English Midlands. The rest of mostly southern England would become a new southern English kingdom under the rule of Edmund Mortimer. The tripartite indenture is a fascinating moment in British history. It is an agreement with some genuine weight to it that could have potentially broken English dominance in the British Isles. With the emergence of an enlarged independent Welsh princedom alongside two relatively weak English kingdoms, A certain balance of power could have been achieved that could have seen, among other things, Ireland freed from English dominance and a more secure, assertive Scotland, not to mention the possible curtailing of future English imperial ambitions on the very cusp of the beginning of the Age of Exploration. For all its potential significance, however, there are definitely a number of holes that can be poked in the tripartite indenture. To begin with, while England had seen a long period of division during early Anglo-Saxon rule, England had been a unified entity since 927 AD, and almost 500 years of such unity had seen the English nobility grow accustomed to this state of affairs. The shattering of this status quo in three, creating a situation where some English nobles might see their estates divided between and potentially lost to the new realms would not have sat well, raising the possibility of some kind of noble revolt against Glyndur and his allies. There is also no guarantee that the signatories or their successors would respect this new status quo. The medieval kings and princes of Europe were not known for their pacifism or habits of keeping to their own lands. Specifically, it is worth remembering that the Mortimers held the claim to the throne of England, not a truncated, sovereign English kingdom, England. If Mortimer had managed to place himself or his nephew upon the English throne before his allies had the opportunity to enforce the clauses of the tripartite indenture, it is not unthinkable that Edmund Mortimer could have turned on his former allies. Furthermore, the fact that Mortimer was married to Owen's sister could have resulted in the birth of children and grandchildren who could hold claims not only to the old throne of England, but also to the new princeton of Wales, potentially leading to a reunification with Wales included. All this aside, the tripartite indentures served to solidify the alliance between Glyndour and his allies, allies whose ranks would swell further into 1405. From the early days of his rebellion, Glyndour had regularly corresponded with the Lords of Scotland and Ireland, asking that they support him in the name of anti-English Celtic solidarity. Ultimately, little would be forthcoming from these overtures, but while his Gaelic brethren turned their backs on him, Owain had found himself enjoying tacit support from France for much of his rebellion. In 1404, Owain would dispatch his chancellor, Griffith Young, to France to try and convince the French king, Charles VI, to sign a formal alliance, a proposal the French would ultimately agree to. This alliance would bear fruit in 1405, with the French launching a coordinated assault on two fronts against the English. French forces on the continent invaded English-held Aquitaine, denying King Henry precious revenues from the wealthy southwestern province of France. Simultaneously, a force of 3,000 French knights landed in Milford Haven in southwestern Wales, joining up with Owain's forces before marching east towards the Welsh border. Unfortunately for the Franco-Welsh force, the French expedition had been poorly planned with the French failing to bring enough fresh water with them, forcing many of the French knights to fight on foot after their horses died of dehydration. This debacle was somewhat offset by the fact that the French had brought with them the latest in siege equipment to take on the English castles and walled towns. Interestingly, on their way to the English border, Owen had the French force take a detour to the village of Caroleon on the outskirts of present-day Newport. This was because, according to medieval authors such as Gerald of Wales and Geoffrey of Monmouth, Caroleon had once served as the location of King Arthur's court. While largely considered part of British mythology nowadays, in medieval times it was understood that not only was King Arthur a figure that actually existed, but that his empire, had spanned the British Isles, Scandinavia, and northern France. This saw not only keen British interest in King Arthur's legend, but also keen French interest, something which Owain looked to make use of, emphasizing the neo Arthurian nature of his new Bridsdom, not only to his Welsh subjects, but also his allies as well. Given that the Franco Welsh invasion, of England in the summer of 1405 was one of the most dangerous moments of Owen's rebellion for King Henry IV, there is surprisingly scant information about what actually happened. It is believed their initial target was the town of Worcester, the staging ground for several English campaigns into Wales. The Franco-Welsh force apparently met King Henry's army about 10 miles northwest of Worcester. Henry's army arrayed itself on the top of Aberlee Hill facing southwards towards Owain's army positioned on the old Iron Age hillfort of Woodbury Hill. The two armies would spend the next 8 days squaring off against each other, neither side seemingly willing to risk abandoning their defensive position to attack the enemy. It is believed on the 8th day Word reached Owain that a second English force was marching behind them, threatening to cut off the Franco-Welsh force from the safety of Wales. In response, the Franco-Welsh force withdrew under the cover of night, back towards the Welsh border, having achieved nothing of note. 1405 would prove to be the beginning of the end for the Glindor Rebellion. It is perhaps not a coincidence that this turn of fortune for the English, coincided with King Henry IV giving command of the war against Glendour, over to his son Henry, the future King Henry V. In February or March 1405, a Welsh force under Rhys Geffen, the Welsh general who won the famous Battle of Brewing Glass, was dispatched to take Grosmont Castle in south-east Wales. Prince Henry dispatched a force under John Talbot, the Earl of Shrewsbury, to intercept the Welsh force, The English relief force seemingly caught the Welsh off guard while they were burning the town of Grosmont, soundly defeating them. Prince Henry reported a possibly exaggerated figure of 800 to 1,000 Welsh dead. It is believed amongst these losses was Rhys Geffen himself, robbing Owain of one of his best generals. The defeat at Grosmont would see another Welsh military expedition launched soon after in attempt to regain initiative in southeastern Wales. This new Welsh force would be led by Owain's oldest son Griffith and Owain's brother tudd their target being the Castle of Usk. It is unknown what the exact size of the Welsh force was, but it can be safely assumed to be considerable, likely in excess of 1,500 men due to the presence of not one, but two prominent members of Glyndwr's family. The resulting Welsh defeat at Usk was believed to be due in large part to the efforts of a loyalist Welsh knight by name of Dafydd Gam. It is believed that Dafydd discovered the Welsh plan to attack Usk Castle, prompting the castle's commander, Baron Richard Grey, to strengthen the castle's defences ahead of the arrival of the Welsh force. The Welsh attack on the north side of the castle, upon their arrival, was thrown back by the unexpectedly fierce resistance of the English garrison. The Welsh forces responded by retreating northwards, into the so-called Monk Wood. Whether this was Griffith trying to slip away through the cover of the trees, or an attempt to lure the English garrison into the wood and ambush them is unclear. The castle garrison under Baron Grey pursued Griffith's forces and, likely with the help of Daphid Gan's knowledge of the local area, managed to catch the Welsh forces in the vicinity of the Castle Oak Pond in the woods. The resulting melee was a slaughter, with the admittedly biased English source claiming that the Welsh lost around 1,500 men, 300 of whom were prisoners the English publicly beheaded in front of Us Castle in the aftermath of the battle. In later years several skeletons would be recovered from the dirty, slimy Castle Oak Pond, resulting in the Welsh name for the battle being the Battle of Puchmelin, which translates to the Battle of the Yellow Pond. This defeat would have been very hard on Owain. His brother Tidder was killed in the fighting at Usk, and his son Griffith was captured and imprisoned in the Tower of London, where he would later die in 1411. Some historians have speculated that these defeats at Grosmont and Ersk not only helped break the myth of Welsh invincibility in the minds of the English, but may have also deeply shaken Owain's faith in himself, a possible explanation for his hesitance to face King Henry himself in battle outside Worcester later that year. 1406 saw Owain go back on the defensive and begin to concern himself with matters of legitimacy. His new princeton was still very young, and in many ways still resembled more a rogue breakaway state than an independent realm, but could be taken seriously on the stage of European politics. Glindua would announce a national programme to establish a fully functional state apparatus within Wales. The parliament crowned in prince would become a regular assembly akin to the English parliament, Owain formally broke from England on religious matters by establishing an independent Welsh church led by an Archbishop of St David's, based in the southwestern Welsh city of the same name. Owain also formally replaced the discriminatory English law code with a new code based off of the highly regarded laws of the 10th century Welsh king Huil Da, or Huil the Good. A notable feature of this law code was that assault and murder were treated as crimes against the family rather than the state, meaning the perpetrators either had to pay considerable compensation to the victimised family, or were executed in the name of said family. Women would also have received relatively, and I must stress we are talking about medieval Europe relatively here, considerable rights. Most significantly, the Huldah law code afforded wives the right to half the property owned by a couple. If the couple were divorced after at least seven years of marriage. Finally, perhaps the most ambitious, some might say far-fetched project, Owain announced, was his intention to establish two Welsh universities, one in the South and one in the North. While this might not sound like much given that there are a grand total of eight universities in Wales nowadays, there were only 22 universities in the entirety of Europe in 1406. All in all, It seemed that Owain's plan in 1406 had seen him move away from the idea of defeating King Henry on the battlefield and proceeding to carve off England, and instead saw him commit to simply allowing the English king to return to bashing his head against the guerrilla-filled hills of Wales, until the Lords of England decided that not only is reconquering Wales not worth the grief, But that the young Princedom was in fact an awfully civilised place, with some rather grand spanking universities they could send their sons to. Unfortunately for Owain, 1406 would end on a pair of bad notes. Firstly, an English invasion force from Ireland successfully recaptured the Isle of Anglesey in North Wales, robbing Owain of some of the best farmland in Wales. See, Wales is a very hilly and mountainous place, and the Isle of Anglesey is relatively flat, leading to it being regarded as something of a Welsh breadbasket, and most likely inspired the nickname for the Isle of Anglesey, Morn Mam Cymru, or Anglesey the Mother of Wales. The second great setback Owain would experience in 1406 was the withdrawal of French forces back to France as tensions between the French nobility threatened to boil over. In a last-ditch move, Owain sent a letter to Charles VI of France, offering to support Charles in a major religious dispute in return for continued French support. For a bit of context, from 1378 to 1417, the title of Pope, the head of the Roman Catholic Church, was disputed between popes based in Rome and popes based in Avignon in France, For political reasons, the French supported the Avignon papacy, and Owain offered to have his new Archbishop of St David's swear loyalty to the Avignon Pope in return for French troops remaining in Wales. Owain's offer ultimately received no reply. This silence is attributed to the increasing French disinterest in goings-on in Wales in the light of the imminent civil war in France, and the fact that Charles VI, A king who famously suffered from an apparent mixture of schizophrenia and a bipolar disorder was going through a period of pronounced poor mental health at the time of Owen's letter, perhaps rendering him incapable of making a decision on Owen's offer. Owen's dreams of repeating his early successes would be quickly shattered in 1407. This year saw the English parliament finally decide to loosen the purse strings a bit. The paltry £4,000 a year that funded Prince Henry's fight against Glyndwr ballooned to £12,000 a year, seeing a flood of fresh soldiers and resources into Wales. It also became clear that Prince Henry had learned from his father's mistakes. Instead of conducting large, expensive military campaigns, whose successes were limited to the burning of a few Welsh villages, Prince Henry utilised Welsh castles still under English control. As bases to launch small scale raids throughout Owain's territory, cutting off trade and supplies of weapons, leaving Owain's supporters increasingly impoverished and incapable of waging war. Prince Henry had essentially turned Owain's guerrilla tactics against him, and Owain simply lacked the men and resources to effectively counter the English forces now swarming throughout Wales. For those supporters of Owain who were tired of the fighting and wanted out, Prince Henry also offered a path to redemption. If they presented themselves and their weapons to an English legal representative and agreed to pay a hefty fine, any crime they had committed in support of Glyndwr would be pardoned. There was little Owen could do to staunch the severe bleeding of support that resulted from Prince Henry's outstretched hand. In February 1408, the involvement of the Percies in Owen's rebellion ended. At Branham Moor in Yorkshire, Henry Percy's small force of Scots and loyal Northumbrians who had spent the last five years making a nuisance of themselves along the border with Scotland met a force under the command of the English knight Sir Thomas Rokeby. After a brief but vicious fight, the Percy forces broke and ran, with Henry Percy being killed fighting a desperate rearguard action to cover his men's retreat. The late Earl of Northumberland's body was cut to pieces and displayed across England. Owain could now have no doubts as to his own fate if he fell into English hands. By the summer of 1408, enough of Glyndua's support in Wales had melted away, but Prince Henry was comfortable going back on the offensive, besieging Aberystwyth Castle and the Castle of Harlech, Owain's capital, determined to capture Owain and finally end his rebellion. Aberystwyth Castle would surrender in the autumn of 1408, but the Siege of Harlech would drag on into 1409. Hold up in Harlech, Glendour's last desperate calls for aid to France and Scotland were ignored. During the siege, Owain's last English ally, Edmund Mortimer, would die of an unknown cause, and when the castle finally fell, Owain was forced to leave his wife Margaret, two of his daughters, including the recently widowed Catherine, and her three children behind as he made his escape. They would all be imprisoned in the Tower of London and would die in the following six years, with Margaret being the last to die, sometime after 1415, having outlived her two daughters and three grandchildren. In 1410, O England’s Rebellion was effectively over, his only remaining support was in north-eastern Wales, where he had begun his rebellion a decade previous. With a small force of loyal supporters, Owain launched one final major raid across the English border into Shropshire that year. It is theorised Owain may have intended to die during this raid, him being too proud to surrender, and consumed with grief by the events of the last four years. Ironically, Owain would survive the disastrous raid, but several of his supporters would be captured and publicly executed. Among them was Rhys Ap Tudor, one of the Tudor brothers who were the first to flock to Glendower's banner. Following the Shropshire raid, Owain and his remaining followers would sequester themselves away in the Snowdonia mountains of North Wales, the most rugged and inhospitable area in Wales, reduced once again to little more than a glorified bandit. Owain Glendower possibly in his 60s at this point, was last seen by his enemies in 1412, when he captured and ransomed Dapheth Gam, the Welsh knight responsible for his brother and eldest son's death at Usk. For a few years afterwards, collections of bandits and outlaws in North Wales was all that remained of Owain's princedom. If Owain could glean any level of satisfaction during his final years in hiding, it was that he outlived his old enemy, King Henry IV, who died in 1413, leaving his son, Prince Henry, to become Henry V of England. Amazingly, Owain would seemingly die of natural causes while still defiantly on the run. His remaining followers, in a display of Owain's legend in his own lifetime, did not betray him to the English and the offer of pardon by the new English king in 1415 was ignored. It is unknown when exactly Owen Glenduart died, but it is assumed to have been sometime between 1416 and 1421. This is based off the fact that Owen's son Meredith refused the offer of a pardon in 1416, but later changed his mind when the offer was made again in 1421, suggesting his father had died freeing him from his obligation to continue supporting his father's cause. The uncertainty of the time and place of Owain's eventual death saw many of his former supporters claim that Owain met the same fate as King Arthur, but Owain too was in a magical sleep to be revived when Wales's hour of need came again. Exactly how Owain spent the last years of his life in reality remains a mystery but the most likely possibility is that he spent his final years in the household of his daughter Alice and her husband, Sir John Scudamore, in the village of Monnington-on-Wye in Herefordshire, near the Welsh border. There are two pieces of evidence to suggest this. Firstly, John Scudamore's marriage to Alice was a closely guarded secret, which when revealed to King Henry VI in 1432, so Scudamore stripped of several honours. While this secret marriage could have been simply to avoid the predictable social stigma of marrying the daughter of an, of an infamous rebel, Alice's own identity being a matter of secrecy would have also ensured that her family did not come under suspicion of hiding Glendower. The second piece of evidence comes from the Owen Glendower Society's president, Adrian Jones, who claimed in 2006 to have spoken to a direct descendant of Alice, a man by the name of John Skidmore, who claimed that Owain did in fact spend his final years with his daughter, and that this fact had remained a closely guarded family secret until Skidmore's mother, evidently the last adherent to this tradition, died in 2002. Glendua left a complicated legacy for the people of Wales, While King Henry V's policy of pardons and reconciliations continued after the rebellion, Wales itself had been left in a sorry state. A decade of fighting had seen great loss of life and the destruction of many villages and towns by both sides. Many of these settlements, such as Grossmont, the town burnt by Glendua's famed general Rius Geffen in 1405, simply never recovered. The rebellion also inflicted severe damage to the social fabric of Wales, with much of the Welsh and English marcher nobility, such as the Mortimers, being wiped out. It would be years before Wales was considered to have fully recovered from the rebellion. Despite this devastation, Owain would not gain a reputation as an arch-traitor, like a Benedict Arnold or a Quisling. In fact, some members of the English nobility would be open and proud about any relationship they held to Owen Glyndŵr. The most notable British family to maintain a relationship with Glyndŵr's memory was the Tudors, to the point where Jasper Tudor, the Duke of Bedford and uncle to Henry Tudor, whose ascension to the throne of England in 1485 he helped engineer, for a time was called the new Mad by the Welsh literati, the same messianic title they had given to Owen. These same poets and the like enthusiastically welcomed the ascension of the Tudors to the English throne, pleased by the fact that a Welsh family now sat on the throne of England, even if they had a regrettably Anglo-French character to them. The Tudor monarchs had a strange relationship with Owen Glendour. While not hostile to his memory, they did not encourage any form of positive remembrance or lionisation of Glendower. There appeared to be a sense of embarrassment when it came to Glyndor as a Welshman who rose above his station but who ultimately lost. In the eyes of the Tudor monarchs, Glyndor's rebellion may have reflected the possible fate of Henry Tudor's own bold grab for power had he been defeated at Bosworth. The best glimpse we have into perceptions of Owen Glyndor in the late medieval and early modern England comes from the William Shakespeare play Henry IV Part One* where Owain appears in the play with his name pronounced in the English, and thus incorrect, style, Owen Glendower. In the single scene in which he appears, alongside Henry Hotspur, Percy, and Edmund Mortimer, Shakespeare characterises Glendower as something of an eccentric mystic, who regales his allies with stories of the dark portents that took place upon his birth, and his claims that as Henry IV's soldiers believed, during the uprising itself, that he could control the weather. While certainly a strange character, Shakespeare did slip in some sympathetic words for Glendower, noting how Glendower was well-read and valiant, and further argued that Owain's rebellion was a fair response to the injustices committed against him by Baron Reginald Grey. As far as I can tell, this play and adaptations of it such as the 2012-2016 series The Hollow Crown, are the only pieces of entertainment media that portray Owen Glyndor, appropriately played by the Welsh actor Robert Pugh in The Hollow Crown. Personally, I'd love to see an Owen Glyndor film. There is quite a lot to work with narratively. Drama, ambition, betrayal, conflict, grief. The fact that Owen's life is not documented in great detail we know almost nothing about the actions and personalities of his nine to ten possible children, for example, could leave a writer with plenty of wriggle room to write interesting characters and side stories, although I am slightly concerned by the possibility of such a film coming to resemble a certain other film about a famous yet mysterious British rebel. From the end of the Tudor period, Owen Glendale would become a somewhat irrelevant historical figure, some brief interest would re-emerge at the end of the 18th century with a series of books Tours and Wales by the Welsh writer Thomas Pennant, uh, compiling many of the old legends about Glyndwr, but it was only in the late 19th century that Owen Glyndwr would truly re-enter the Welsh public imagination. Owen Glyndwr's reputation as a great soldier made him a popular figure amongst Welshmen serving in the British army. In the First World War, British Prime Minister David Lloyd George, a Welshman, actively made use of Owen Glyndŵr to galvanise Welsh support for the First World War, drawing comparisons between Owen's rebellion and the fights of other small plucky nations such as Britain's allies Belgium and Serbia. Lloyd George unveiled a statue of Glyndŵr at Cardiff City Hall in 1916 and approved the selling of postcards depicting Owen's famous victory at Man of Hudgen to raise money to help Welsh soldiers injured in the war. In modern-day Wales, Glendower is very much considered a national hero. Now, Glendower's influence hasn't always manifested itself in pleasant ways. The most notable example of this being the Welsh nationalist terrorist group called the Maybion Glendower, uh, Sons of Glendower, in English who carried out hundreds of firebombings mostly targeting English holiday homes. That aside, Owain Glyndwr by and large continues to be a symbol of a healthy sense of national pride for the people of Wales. In 2003-2004 there was a poll to find the 100 greatest Welsh heroes. The 80,000 votes cast saw Owain Glyndwr come second, 127 votes behind the worthy winner, Nai Bevan the man most commonly credited with the creation of the British NHS and 237 votes ahead of the man himself, Bob Dylan. At most Welsh sporting events you can find people flying Owain's original personal standard, the quartered coat of arms of the old Welsh princedoms of Powys and De Bath. In the Manic Street Preachers album Autumn Song, released in 2007, there is a song called 1404, inspired by Owain Glindua. The same year saw the installation of a very badass statue of Glyndor on horseback in Denbyshire, the heartland of his rebellion. What I think Owen Glyndor would have been most pleased to learn about was that in 2008 the Glendower University was established in Wrexham, Wales. After all, the man liked his universities. Thank you for listening, I had a lot of fun putting together these last two episodes, And it is certainly possible we may be seeing more multi-part series on this podcast in the future. Until then, I hope you will continue to tune in for my future raids into history.